1: It sounds a bit corny in a way, but really, you know, a lot of particularly the founders and the people that, that get with them, you know, this is what they've decided to spend their life doing: building a company from scratch. And and to be able to, you know, it's a real privilege and very satisfying to be able to you know, pass on wisdom and knowledge that helps people, you know, get to where they want to go in life. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of that.
2: Good and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Now, when we think of shares, we generally think of single companies that are listed on the stock market. But this is not always the case. Some shares allow you to access investments that are generally beyond the scope of individual investors, such as the case with Bailador, ASX Code, BTI. Now, Bellador is a specialist investor in growth stage information technology businesses, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest today, David Kirk, co-founder and partner. G'day, David. Good morning. Okay. Now, David's the former chief executive... Well, actually, he's got a, um, a resume as long as your arm, but we're not going to go through everything <laughs> today. David's the former chief executive of Fairfax Media, the chairman of Trade Me and Katmandu, as well as a director on several other boards, and he was also the captain of the All Blacks when they won the World Cup in 1987, many... Moons ago, many
1: moons ago, it seems a long time ago now. <laughs> yeah, we just had our seventh World Cup. That was the first.
2: We're talking about Bailador and what um, Bailador invests in, and I mentioned that it's uh, growth stage businesses. What is a growth stage business?
1: Uh, it's, it's quite specific to information technology. It's a term used. Um, it's synonymous term is expansion stage, and it gives you a good idea. It's not investing in startup companies, small companies with a with a good idea, uh, a couple of founders keen to build some tech and find some customers and and have a business sometime in the future it's investing in established businesses which are at a point in their sort of growth curve where they're ready to grow fast but they need capital typically in the australian market that would mean the business had 5 to 10 million dollars worth of revenue was growing at 30 40 50 60% even a year was well established in Australia and New Zealand, had a good customer base, it's proven technology, uh, it, it knew how to win new customers and there was enough um, information, financial information about the company to be able to assess its, its value and its prospects carefully. Uh, and that's the stage at which we invest. And, and very often for Australian companies, given that this part of the world is not huge compared to the rest of it, they're about to or have just begun to go international as well. Um, And that would typically be to the United States or North America generally um, or Europe, um, often starting in the UK because of the language.
2: Yep. So generally in these kind of companies, you would normally list to get that capital. So you're providing an alternative to these companies rather than listing on the Australian share
1: market? Yeah. I mean, listing is an alternative for companies at about the size that we invest in them. But often it's just a bit too early for them. One of the things about listing, I think, it's very important, and we've seen this quite a bit in companies that list a bit too early. If their revenue and their earnings are not predictable, they can, you know, swing wildly in terms of their valuations. People can get very excited about them because the revenue is growing very fast, and they're pointing to this big opportunity to grow globally, and that's great, and their share price goes up a lot. But then they have a disappointment for some reason, and I can tell you from experience, all small companies growing have disappointments uh, (laughs) at one stage or another. It doesn't mean they're bad companies. It just means that they have a difficult six months or whatever it might be. But they have a disappointment and the share price tanks because everyone loses confidence in them and uh, and then it becomes very difficult for them to raise new capital because the share price is so low and they're sort of stuck. They become a bit of a sort of listed zombie. So that's a real risk that we don't think these private companies should take. Um, And so we think it's better to stay private for a bit longer.
2: Okay, so what are the stages that these kind of businesses go through before they get to listing?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question because actually they go through three stages always, Um, and it's actually not just as they get to listing. it's When they're listed, they're still in often in in the stages. And the three stages are startup, growth or expansion, acceleration of growth, and eventually maturity. Uh, And in startup, the businesses have really... In, in the technology space, they've written their code, they've written their product, they have a product, but it's often a, a quite a, um, you know, a, a beginner's product. They, they need to build on the product and develop it. But they're solving a particular problem, they've written the code, they've got an informi- information technology-based business, and then they go out and they start winning customers. Uh, and then the customers, usually it's just the founders, a couple of founders and one or two other people with a little bit of money from friends and family and their own savings. Um, And that's really a a pilot stage of the company. It's really getting established, trying to understand whether their good idea about what problem they were solving for customers is actually going to work. They've written the technology which solves the problem on paper, but they now need to go out or at least solve the problem digitally. Uh, They now need to go out and, and, and get people to pay for it. And so that goes on for quite a while, two or three years usually in the startup phase where companies are trying to get to a certain phase once they get you know sort of uh, a little way through that in other words they've built a customer base of perhaps 20 30 uh, 40 customers uh, and and you can see the economics of it the customer's paying a certain amount and it's costing us a certain amount to win that customer um, and then we have a certain amount of um, ongoing cost to service the customer and you can see that that's actually profitable each customer is actually profitable then the companies start to the companies look to scale up a bit and the early expansion stage normally companies will get sort of half a million dollars from them early VC or from angel investors, which are in the jargon of tech investing, angel investors are wealthy individuals mostly who who do exactly that, put somewhere between a hundred thousand and perhaps five hundred thousand dollars into these startup companies. And they put them into lots of companies, seed lots of companies as the jargon goes, and then some of them succeed and some of them don't. And then so just that's the beginning of the growth or expansion stage and then you get into the into the more um, expansion stage or growth stage proper and that's when we would come in and that's when companies typically would have 20 30 40 employees by the time we invest in them have got that sort of five million of revenue have got good started to get good business processes and good reporting um, and have started to um, go international uh, and then then from then on it's, it's right into expansion and growth and expansion and growth means adding more people usually particularly in the sales side of the business. And you have to
2: be very careful, presumably, at this stage.
1: You have to go step by step. You have to um, understand, again, I keep coming back to the economics of growth, you have to understand how much we can charge a customer in a new jurisdiction, how much it's costing us to win that customer. So you need to just take it carefully and put a few people on the ground and build up the business and get to understand. Sometimes in those markets, you know, it may be better than going direct. It may make sense to go through a partner, for instance. You need to understand that,
2: because this is the key to it. That, you know, businesses these days are not um, about building a factory and then producing something. It is acquiring customers. That's the key to so many of these kind of businesses, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's so in, in, in technology in the information technology space where we work. It's about seeing things being done inefficiently in the in the physical world or in the old world, in the legacy world, uh, and understanding that there's a better way to do it. That's one, that's probably two-thirds of the opportunities we see. The other third is just something completely new. And again, in our jargon, it's called white space. No one's doing anything in the space, but you can create a new product or a new model. You know, social media would be a good example. There was no such thing as really social media unless you counted going to clubs and talking to a, you know, a smaller number of um, people. Um, but social media was created because it was, there was just a new idea a new opportunity, and connectivity the fact that we're all connected one way or another through the internet allows social media to exist and didn't exist before. So that's a big part of the new businesses. They're just new businesses that are built on uh, from in new spaces that no one had ever thought about before. But a lot of them, a lot of what we do is taking um, inefficient legacy practices and doing them much more efficiently.
2: You're finding businesses that require funding to continue to grow, but um, and you take a role in actively managing them as well, don't yes, you? Yes,
1: that's a very good point. Um, it's, the two absolutely go together in our philosophy of investment.
2: You're not just um, you're not just giving them money and then letting it no, fly
1: away. we yeah. invest in fewer businesses at a later stage, so more, you know, more mature businesses, bigger businesses, uh, and we get um, deeply involved in helping them improve, because in the end, they need that. It's not just the capital they're looking for, it's, it's experience in b- building businesses. And My partner Paul and I, we, Paul Wilson and I founded the fund about seven or eight years ago now uh, and we both got extensive business management experience. I, as you said in the introduction, came up through a, a whole range of um, senior business management roles in big companies, including Fairfax Media, and Paul worked in um, private equity for an extended period of time. So private equity buys the whole company generally and usually um, uses debt to do that. We don't, do in, we don't use debt at all, but they use debt and they buy the whole company, but then they get involved uh, in at least setting the company up for success by doing lots of analysis and, and putting in place a good business plan solving problems as they go along, even though they have um, professional managers actually managing the business. So both of us had lots of experience in, in business management as well as investment. Uh, and that's what we do. and That's what we like doing.
2: Do you, Get, do you have any practical <coughs> examples of uh, where you've done that?
1: Uh, um,
2: a specific example that you can give us, for example? Yeah, I think,
1: well, a very general example is finding people. Turnover in people is, is quite high. Um, and we all know that the return on investment in the best chief executives, or it's not really so much chief executives because that's usually the founders, but the best chief financial officers or chief operating officers or chief marketing officers or head of sales um, are difficult to find. Uh, But we've got lots of contacts and lots of um, people we know to talk to, so we've proven very good at, at finding people and getting people to join the companies that we've invested in, and that's um, been a huge benefit to the companies.
2: So, getting being able to bolt in the exactly the right roles, the people for the roles that are required to run these businesses.
1: Yeah, exactly. And being um, a partner with the founders and, and sitting down and helping them understand what skills they need at what stage of the company, because we've been in the business long enough now to see it pretty pretty regularly. We know, we know, at a, when the chief current chief financial officer, who's just been mostly, you know, um, making sure accounting counting the money and making sure that uh, you know, the bookkeeping was done properly, needs to uh, move on and we need to find someone who's better at either raising more money or is, can take on a much bigger commercial role in the company, opening new offices overseas. Hold up.
2: you do have a very specific list Mm -hmm. of criteria that you use to decide which companies you're going to invest in.
1: Yes, we do. Um, And it starts, as I said earlier, with with scale. We don't really invest in any companies with revenue less than $5 million. And it's not the revenue per se, it's the maturity of the company that that signifies, Uh, which means that they have established technology, so they're not still trying to build their technology and figure out if it works. It does actually work. They've got a they've got a fairly large customer base, pretty s- established customer base, uh, and we can see that that customer base sticks with them, and the customer base is rebought if you like. They've they, they realize that this is the best solution they're going to get, and they are going to stick with them for as long as they can. So that's very important to us in terms of the the maturity and scale of the company. The business economics is very important to us, understanding the profitability, and that starts with the gross margin. Uh, and then comes uh, through the cost of acquiring customers uh, and the turnover of customers. You know, we want that to be very low. We so don't want if to could just um, look that into
2: those um, specific uh, terms, gross margin
1: and cost of acquisition. Yep, sure. So the gross margin is the difference between the price that you charge the customer and what it charges you just to sort of keep the lights on and deliver the service. And that, generally speaking, in technology businesses is the the infrastructure costs, of running the business. Sometimes that's also the customer acquisition costs can be put into that gross margin, or the, sorry, the marketing costs associated with acquiring the customer can be put into that um, gross margin calculation. And and what you find in a lot of technology businesses is the gross margin is very high. Um, It doesn't actually cost you much just to keep the lights on serving the customer, because you've already built the technology, you built the tech, built the, the, um, the software, and now you just, you sell it to people and the software just runs. Um, there's obviously investments and updates down the road, but, but basically um, you know, the current serving of your current customer base uh, is very cost-effective. And gross margins and software as a service, which, again, we'll come back to explain. Well, maybe um, we can talk about software okay. as a
2: service. right? Gross margins point, yeah. tend
1: to be uh, around about 80%, high 70s or 80%, and that's really high. And a physical business that has to actually buy raw materials, turn them into something and then sell them, um, has a much lower gross margin.
2: Yep. So software as a service, these are yeah, all businesses. Yeah, software
1: as a service. So traditionally, software was written and delivered to people who used it um, to, to load onto their machine, onto their computer.
2: On a CD-ROM, on a remember CD-ROM, those? <laughs> on a CD-ROM, or
1: a floppy disk, even before <laughs> that. So you actually had, you know, you, MYOB for small businesses would write their software, they'd put it onto a floppy disk and they'd post it out to um, small businesses and then they'd put it in to the into their um, the CD-ROM, they put it in and, and, and you would upload it and it would be on your machine. Um, that's a very inefficient way to deliver software in the end and because the internet's now got so good and you can transmit so much information over the internet in such a short period of time, now you don't have to have the software um, physically loaded onto your machine. You can log into the software when it's um, effectively loaded into or it's stored um, in what's called the cloud which is really just a network of servers and other hardware. Physical hardware. Physical hardware, yep. which, which you can put your software on, and then through the internet people can go to that space and they can operate the software um, as if it was loaded onto their computer, when it actually isn't. They're just doing it over the internet. So software as a service is that business model in all sorts of applications. Zero, for instance, which many people have heard of and know about is accounting software. That's all delivered out of the cloud. So It's interesting that you brought up
2: "Mind Your Own Business" as a um, as an example because really Xero has uh, superseded yes Mind Your Own Business, hasn't it?
1: And the main reason these companies do see they they supersede the, the new wave of technology supersedes supersedes the old wave of technology for two reasons. One is they are um, they have better functionality; they just do more, and the software is a service software. The way it does more is be more connected to everyone at the same time. So, as a small business, small business owners will know that when they're doing their software, as they can complete updating things on a daily basis, their accountant, for instance, can see that in real time, Uh, and your accounts can be keeping up with your bookkeeping or your or your your cost entering or your sales entering every day. So that's 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 one of the ways in which the functionality of Counting software as a service is better than, than software as a service loaded on the, on your own computer. But the second way is cost. It's just much cheaper. So the price of everything comes down as well.
2: I think at this point Lee, we should talk about some of the companies that you are, yeah. um, that you're investing in at Bailador.
1: So software as a service not only has very good economics of growth. In other words, high gross margins and relatively low cost to add new customers. Uh, and those customers, if you've got a good product, stay for a long period of time. So. The subscription revenue that you get from those customers compounds over time, and you find that you get that wonderful asymptotic growth curve. Oh, oh from, what's that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you yeah, know, Instead of just uh, being a straight line, the, the growth curve gets steeper as it... Logarithmic, sort of. Logarithmic, like. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Logarithmic um, growth curve from software as a service because you've got co- the compounding effect of customers that you've added one or two or three or four... Or sometimes seven or eight years ago, which are just still there, and you don't you, you charge them every year, but you don't have to you service them, but only very generally. You don't have to win them more. There's no more cost associated with those customers. Yeah. So software service has very good growth economics. Um, so that's what we've mostly invested in, and our most successful investment is a business called SiteMinder. Mm. Uh, I should go to the punchline on SiteMinder uh, <laughs> first, and that just before Christmas, we we raised capital, or at least the company raised capital, and we supported it. Strongly um, at 1.1 billion dollars of um, of market. Or it's not market capitalization because it's not listed, but it's a private company. Uh, and that business was was you know in the small tens of millions of dollars when we first invested about seven or eight years ago in terms of its total value. So that's been the growth. That's been the sort of over 20 times. And what do, what does SiteMinder <laughs> so do? SiteMinder so provides software for hotels to connect them. To all of the sources of potential room bookings, so if you're a hotel and you want to collect connect online, you need to connect yourself to Booking.com, to Expedia, to Agoda, to Sea Trip, the big to Chinese the companies, girl. to Trivago, <laughs> to the Trivago girl, to um, to Hotels.com, to a whole range of other 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 places like Airbnb. Also, is now um, part of it, but you need to connect to as many. Uh, potential sources of people looking to book your hotel as you possibly can and not only do you need to just a sort of simple connection you need to be able to communicate the details of your room availability so what rooms are available when what what the price of the different rooms are you know which ones face the sea and which ones face the mountains and all the other extras that you have Uh, in the room so there's quite a lot of information that needs to be communicated through
2: so just if we could just look into this a bit deeper so someone at reception has access is that how it works
1: uh that's right well someone has access has access to what in the hotels is called their property management system so the hotel is a property Mm -hmm. um and they have a property management system and that manages the stay it manages the booking and when someone books in and that booking can be someone walks in and say i'd like to book a room or it can be online um and so connecting the online bookings to the hotel's bookings management system as well as you know, the restaurant in the hotel, the, the anyone that uses the minibar, someone that goes to the gym, anything else associated with the stay so that they can you know, send you a, a bill at the end or give you the bill at the desk at the end and make sure you're in their CRS, which is their Customer Relationship Management, their CRM. Um, so they can send you follow-ups and you can be in their loyalty program and all the things you get today. All of that is on the hotel side. What SiteMinder does is connect all of that to all of the sources of bookings. And SiteMinder is really a warehouse which stores all of the room availability for a particular hotel or for 36,000 hotels, which is the number that it's now got. Uh, and then anyone from anywhere in the world can connect to that warehouse uh, and they can see all of the availability of all the rooms on 36,000 hotels all around the world.
2: And this was just a, a couple of young founders did it here in Australia. Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's,
2: it's, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. You sort of think that this would be something that would come out of Silicon Valley or yeah. you know, one of the great tech centers around the world.
1: Well, it's a great story because they were they were both in the tech industry. They were working for a, for a sort of a tech services type business. And one of the two founders... And it's typically a product and market person and a technical person, a code writing person. It's typically what we see as the two founders. The product and market person, Mike Ford, who was the CEO um, for a long period of time. He had a friend who had a backpackers, and he used to go along and see his friend and they'd have a few drinks at the weekend and so on. And his friend was constantly complaining about, mm-hmm. "Oh God, it's so bloody difficult. I've got I'm trying to you know, manage my bookings and I've got to connect with, now. Now everything's happening online with young people." Uh, booking in the backpackers, and he had two or three backpackers, he, they were um, having to connect directly with Booking.com, Expedia, all of the different lines. So they had to write code to connect to all of these people differently. And then they had to have someone monitoring the availability of the rooms as they were on each of these potential booking um, sources. So that, you know, that if someone walked in and just booked it overnight, they'd have to ring up while he'd probably go online um, or send an email Uh, to Trivago and Booking.com and all the rest of them and say take one room off because someone just walked in and booked so it was very inefficient and quite costly and it meant that they had to not put all of their rooms on all of the potential sources of bookings so um Mike thought yeah that's really inefficient so um they went away and he and with his with the other partner Mike Rogers they started to write the code and started to go around and start to talk to hotels and got immediate um pickup and off they went and uh yeah we joined them when they had about five million of revenue and they were just about to open a well they wanted to open an office in london in asia they would often opened a very small office in london uh and they needed our money and we put sort of you know five and a half million dollars or so into them and, and off we went
2: and uh what sort of size of what share of the market at worldwide would they have now
1: well it's still small yeah because um, there are around a million hotels worldwide many of them are long tail of small hotels and and only about half of those are currently online. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I think you know they are the dominant provider in, in this market.
2: There's no, is there any competition in this? There market? is
1: small competition around the world in other places, but they are far and away the leader. They triple the size of their nearest competitor mm-hmm. in terms of number of hotels connected, and in terms of number of systems that they are able to connect to, number of property management systems they can log in they can connect with. So they've got the best. They got the best position they could possibly have.
2: Yeah. Does that make them a unicorn? Is that are they a unicorn? Well, they're an
1: Australian unicorn. Unicorn for people is uh, companies that have passed the valuation um, mark of a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, in Australia, they are they are a unicorn.
2: Okay. It's, it's like being in the top 40 in Australia. It's not the same in America. <laughs> no, it's not. you wouldn't quite be a unicorn you, in you're US dollars. Not in US dollars, yeah. But we're
1: on the way, <laughs> and the business is continuing to grow strongly. Yeah. And it's uh, very interesting. 80% of its revenue comes from outside Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So it makes you realize it's been global for a long time. It's competed with the best yeah. in, globally, and it's won. And now it's got to just continue to, to um, double down on that.
2: Okay, you've started investing in the share market. Now, how do you track trades, dividends, distributions, and franking credits and all those other goodies? Just throw away those clunky spreadsheets with ShareSight. I have my portfolio on ShareSight, and everything is automatically recorded. ShareSight are pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast two months free on an annual premium plan. Go to sharesite.com forward slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a seven day free trial. That's sharesite.com slash Shares for beginners. Straker is another one. That's an interesting yeah. business. They're listed on the stock market they as are. well, aren't yeah. they? Are they the only one of your companies that's listed?
1: Yes, the only one that we've listed directly out of the fund. Another? So we've made, we've held our position. We've sold down about 10 to 20% overall. Just, you know, it's important that we realize cash for our investors over time. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of our model to make sure we do that. Uh, but we're a big believer in Straker and we think that's got a long way to run.
2: Okay, tell us a bit about Straker.
1: Yeah, Straker is in the language translation business. Um, and language translation is a huge global market. It's a $42 billion market, growing at around about 8 or 9% a year. And you might say to so yourself, why is language translation growing so fast? It's because of cross-border commerce. Everyone's now, because again, because of the internet and the ability to sell in, in multiple markets, um, people are able to sell in uh, markets that speak a foreign language. But that means they need to put their website and they need to put all their marketing material... Um, and they need to put all of their, even their packaging material, needs to all be translated. And because there's much more cross-border commerce, there's also lots of agreements. People are putting in place agreements to do things in other languages, and that all needs to be um, translated. So lots of global commerce, uh, cross-border commerce, is causing lots of demand for translation services. The typical way in which translation has been done has been by people, um, who have got you know d- degrees and, and deep understanding of the languages and they 've
2: accreditation
1: accreditation yeah. exactly and they 've translated um, out of their mind um, not too long ago um, there was the you know, machine translation came along and, and many people will be familiar with Google translation but if you typed any any string of um, things to be translated of any you know, amount two or three sentences into google you 'll find it comes back pretty jumbled. It gets the general gist of it, but the actual specifics of many things are not right. So what um, Straker decided to do about um, six or seven years ago, the Straker Translations did, and it's it's founded by Grant Straker and his wife, Merrin, they um, thought that they needed to combine machine translation with people translation. But they realised that employing people was, a, was an inefficient way to um, do the translation, um, so they crowdsourced And so they've set up a platform and the key for them and the key for the business was to build a platform which allowed for very efficient loading of the material to be translated into it for then everyone to have visibility of that um, in real time for that to be um, immediately and automatically machine translated um, using all the best translation engines, including Straker's own translation engine, which is now um, as good as any in the world and getting better because of their yeah, billions and billions of, of strings they've have translated. Um, machine translation for then in... in, in so,
2: so the machines are learning the translation. They're learning the translation as the they, do it. Yep, right, the
1: they like. do it. Yeah, the more they do it, more the yeah. more they translate, the more they realise what that word next to that word looks like and mm-hmm. what the context um, will be. Wow, not sure <laughs> they're ever going to become you know able to replace humans completely, but um, but they're getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time as the machine translation is being done, which of course is very quick, um, there's a crowdsourcing of human translators in the in the and the the work is there's an agreed form for selection um of the two word pairs and there's eighty Source languages and around about 80 target languages, so you can go from, literally, from German to Swahili and Russian to some other... Tongan. uh, Tongan, yeah, exactly. Uh, And literally, you can do all of those um, languages, but you need to find the translators that know those two languages. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those are all crowdsourced, and there are tens of thousands of um, translators that... Are on the roster as it were and yeah. they all pitch for the business because they, they something comes up in their email bing would you like to do this business or a text or something and they say yeah i'd like to do that and so they come back very quickly the material sent out to them they they tidy it up they make sure that the the um that the machine translation is 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 perfectly accurate and got the context right and it goes back uh onto the platform and then it's concluded and then the, the person who's put it in and uploaded it can then it, it's available to them and obviously they pay they pay um, a, a deposit up front, and then they pay the rest of it, and they can they can get their translation out. And, and Straker is very cost effective because of the efficiency yeah. with which the business is able to deliver that that translation service. And so the business is very successful, and it's growing, continuing to grow well. It acquires customers organically um, online uh, and by becoming the preferred uh, translation provider for large um, uh, multinationals who need mm-hmm. to you know, have a lot of translation done, and also for governments and it's added on a media translation arm in the last year, meaning subtitles and other translation for media that needs to be um, like when you're watching Netflix or, so or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. again, there's a the whole lot of um, media and film and that's being produced for um, other other languages now. Yeah. Uh, and so someone needs to translate that, and, and they they bought a company that's great at doing that, uh, and now they've moved into that market. Is Baylador
2: what you'd describe as an LIC, a listed investment company?
1: Technically it is. Because, Technically
2: it is, but it's not like... But it's the, not
1: like any of the other listed investment companies. Hmm. It's really much more like listed venture capital or listed private equity in the sense that we invest in private companies and we hold them in a portfolio that uh, investors in the one listed share, Balador Technology Investments, BTI, can get access to. So people um, investing in BTI get, a, get get access to 10... Uh, private companies, we're actually nine private and one listed now, with with Straker being listed, um, and all of the growth that goes uh, along with that. Listed investment companies typically just invest in other listed um, companies, so there's a lot more, if you like, um, uniqueness in in what we do, um, and the valuations of the companies in our portfolio are not just passed through valuations from other listed companies. They are conservative valuations of the value of a private company, mm-hmm. um, and we do that by marking to third-party investments, so if someone invests in the private company, then we will mark to that valuation, or someone, there's a sale of part of, a, of the company we're invested in, we'll mark to that valuation, it's a cash cash on cash measure.
2: So uh, just to simplify that, I believe that you, what, what, what you take great pains to do is you want to make sure that investors are actually making money out of these investments, aren't you? We That's did. what it comes down to. A- it,
1: absolutely it? what yeah. it comes down to. So we want to make sure that we are holding the investments at a conservative valuation, a lower valuation, Then we feel very com- very positive about realising the company's there. We're going to get more for this company than we're currently holding it um, because it's very important for us and for people's confidence in the fund that when we come to exit, we sell, at a higher price than we're currently holding.
2: So, what are you personally getting out of this? I mean, apart from the financial, obviously. But um, uh, how does it make you feel working with these kind of companies yeah. and, and going through this process?
1: Well, I think there's two things. One is Paul and I started the company from zero. You know, we sat in a room together and thought, you know, how are we going to run, the, how are we going to start this business. So we, we feel we have a, quite a sort of uh, compatibility and an understanding of what founders go through, and we built, built the company up um, over the years, over the seven or eight years. Um, to today. And we see it as, a, you know, in a great position to accelerate its growth from here. But the other thing, I've always been a business manager. I've always taken a lot of satisfaction out of growing businesses. I've been a business manager and I've been a growth orientated business manager. Um, I don't like just winding things down or managing for cash or anything like that. I want to see a business grow, which means being innovative, I mean, finding new products and seeing, you know, the people blossom within the organisation in a growth environment because people do they get such excitement out of being part of winning um, companies Uh, and that's what I enjoy doing and you know I'm at a certain stage of my um, working life where I've um, scraped my knees a few times and made a few mistakes and had a few you know great wins so I'm delighted to to hand that back to pass that back and to be able to um, give good advice and to um, and to be as helpful as possible to these companies and to help them fulfill their dreams it's not it sounds a bit corny in a way but really you know a lot of particularly the founders and the people that that get with them you know this is what they've decided to spend their life doing building a company from scratch and uh yeah they're passionate aren't they they're totally passionate passionate, really passionate and to be able to you know it's a real privilege um and very satisfying to be able to you know pass on wisdom and knowledge that helps people you know get to where they want to go in life i get a lot of satisfaction out of that
2: David Kirk, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production with that special Greek delicious flavor. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't.